0: I'd like to invite the children to come join me this morning up at the front. If y'all are here, you can come on up. How y'all doing? Good. So, today we're going to be talking about breaking stuff. Alright, you're looking at me like we're crazy. Is breaking stuff usually a good thing, or? That's not a trick question, right? Usually it's bad. Like your mom tells you not to break stuff in the house usually, right? Like usually that's you're in trouble if it happens a little bit. Right, breaking twigs isn't bad. We step on those, but like most things we're not supposed to break, right? But today we're talking about breaking stuff, and we're talking about it like it's a good thing, okay? So in the Bible, what it talks about is that sometimes we actually have to break stuff because when we break things, it says that God can make beautiful things out of our brokenness. And you're like, that sounds kind of weird, right? Think about this, right? If you have a ceramic pot or like a vase, right? Something that's like really pretty, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like like those things that your mom tells you not to break because they're really pretty? Yeah. Like if you drop it, it's just gonna shatter. Yeah, so think about that, right? Well, if you drop it and it shatters, you're not gonna have a pot or a vase anymore, are you? But, have you ever seen mosaic tiles? You know what I'm talking about, where you like have all the beautiful colors and make something entirely new? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Yeah. that's an example of taking something that's broken and making it something brand new, right? So it's not always something that's so bad, is it? So when, when they told me what we were talking about today, it reminded me of a song, all right? And it's not a song we're singing in church today, so we're gonna, I'm gonna sing just a little tiny bit of it for you today because for a while it was my favorite song because there's a lot of hope in it. Because sometimes we just have broken stuff in our lives, whether it's something we're sad about or something we don't know what to do about, right? And to think that God can make beautiful things out of that is really, really cool, right? So here, here's the song. I'm going to sing just a little bit about a little bit of it, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to do something together before we leave. Okay? So it goes like this: You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. You make me new. You are making me new. You make me new. You are making me new. Dust is not usually something we think of as pretty, right? We like wipe it up, right? But God says that he can make beautiful things out of dust, out of nothing, out of us, even when our lives don't look so pretty, right? So today we're talking about brokenness and that it's okay to break things because we serve a God who can make beautiful things out of anything, any broken thing we have to offer, if we're willing to give it to God. He can make something beautiful out of it. Isn't that crazy? We can't put stuff back together very well ourselves a lot of the time. But God can. And He actually says that He'll make it even better than it was before it was broken. So, we're going to pray together first. And then we have one last surprise about broken things. Okay? So, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this day where we get to come together and learn about you. Thank you that you're a God who makes things new, that you can take brokenness and make it whole again. Thank you for taking our brokenness and making it a new creation, something more beautiful than it was before, something more beautiful than we could have expected. I pray that you'll help us to remember to give you our broken things, God, that you would help us to give those to you because it's hard sometimes, because we don't want to share those things that are ugly or that we don't think are worthy. But help us to do that, God, because you are who you are, and we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here's my surprise, okay? When I thought about broken things... I thought about a lot of different stuff, right? Like, what do you break that then becomes more beautiful, right? Well, my my favorite example is a piñata. Piñatas are cool, aren't they? They're colorful. Yeah, they're like it looks nice, right? We, if I just like kept it on a shelf somewhere, it's pretty. But you know what's even better is when you break it open. You know what I mean? Because, when you break pinatas open, you can make something even more beautiful out of it.
1: What is
2: that? Hmm.
0: You're welcome, parents. So should we break the pinata? I think so, too. Are you ready? There's one leg, there's the other. Oh, there goes some. Oh, there's more, don't you worry. Oh, yeah, rip that up. Broken things, guys. <sighs> that is all. Oh, you're to get me Y'all have a good day, okay?
1: There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession to occupy, if only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark.
0: While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head.
3: But there were some who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her.
1: But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her.
0: This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God.
3: Well, our pastor is not here this morning and so I would like to begin by apologizing to our many graduate students here at Calvary. I know some of you were hoping to supplement your income by playing a little Mary Alice Bird whistle sermon bingo this morning. <laughs> Alas, there are no Frederick Beekner or Henry Nouwen references in this sermon nor is there a single mention due to what can only be described as sheer sloppiness on my part of any female preacher with three names like barbara brown taylor unless of course you happen to be a loose constructionist on the rules and you want to count those previous three sentences in which case jeremy cruz you are on your way nevertheless i do want to put your minds at ease For the sake of continuity and the maintenance of long-cherished Calvary traditions, this sermon does include a childhood story from Kentucky. (laughs) This sermon is an edited version of one I preached earlier this year on the occasion of my father's retirement from the First Baptist Church of Valdosta, Georgia, after 47 years a retirement which lasted less than three months as he is now serving part-time in a missions capacity at that same church. Mary Alice felt that the story that I'm going to share this morning reflects both of our recent proclamation themes, the image of God and God's abundance. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at one of the more misunderstood statements of Jesus found in Mark fourteen seven: the poor you will always have with you. These words are found in the story of Jesus anointing at Bethany. The story is surrounded by a narrative frame that points to its function. That is an outer frame that suggests the meaning of what of the intersection, that suggests what this intersection is really about. Whereas we use paragraphs and subject headings to identify our matter, ancient authors, who by the way did not use spaces between words or punctuation at all, they put brackets around a story by using literary devices. Sometimes they used the repetition of a simple word or phrase before and after a story. Sometimes they repeated a type of story, like the healing of a blind man. And then the story uh, that you would be looking at, followed by another healing of a blind man. Sometimes they began one story and sandwiched another in between. And sometimes, as in today's passage, the material before and after the story contain a shared theme. Mark 14, 1 and 2, the two verses right before our story, In those verses, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. While in verses 10 and 11, the two that come right after our story, in those verses, one of Jesus' own disciples is planning to betray him to those people mentioned above. And so the story in between these verses serves to foreshadow the ultimate fate of Jesus our story this morning is a story that anticipates the cross in our passage marked 14 3 through 9 which the ensemble read for us jesus just like the kings of ancient israel is being anointed yet this scene is full of irony it is not exactly what one would expect jesus anointing was not in the temple the House of Purity, but in the house of Simon the Tanner, one who was ritually unclean. He was anointed not by the high priest, but by a woman, and an anonymous one at that. His anointing was not accompanied by acclaim, but rather by criticism. And finally, he was not anointed for long life and reign as a king should be. Jesus was anointed for death. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are portrayed as never grasping what is going on. They are frequently contrasted with the outsider, the person that we would least expect who shows up in the story and recognizes what God is doing. It is a very effective literary device because every time the disciples fail to grasp the message or its significance, It serves as a giant red flag pointing us, the reader, Jesus' 21st century disciples toward what it is that we need to see. In this story, the anonymous woman fulfills that role for us. She perceives the gravity of the moment, and she goes all in. This is no token gesture on her part. She breaks an expensive jar made of alabaster just as Jesus' body will be broken. And she pours out an ointment of pure, expensive nard just as Jesus' life will be poured out. Now I know what you're thinking. What in the world is nard? Nard is, perhaps, the most unfortunately named perfume ever. Hey, honey, what's that scent you're wearing? Nard? How would you even go about marketing that? Nard, by Calvin Klein. Because sometimes, you just want him to leave you alone. At any rate, one of the ingredients in nard was actually imported from the region that we now know as Nepal. That would be expensive today. Just imagine what would be involved in transporting something that far in antiquity. And you know it wasn't covered by Amazon Prime. And according to our complaining disciples, it cost 300 denarii. 300 Roman silver coins. About the equivalent of one... uh, of a full year's wages for a typical worker. And so in response to this extravagant gesture, some of his followers proclaim this act a waste, revealing their blindness to its significance. This woman's act paints a picture of Mark's Christology, that is Mark's portrait of who Jesus is. The Christ, the Messiah, is one who is anointed to suffer for others. He breaks his body and pours out his life on the cross. Speaking of her action, Jesus says, literally in the Greek, she has done a good work. And yet some who are with him, all they see is waste. This woman's extravagant gesture, this anointing of Jesus' body for burial, was a one-time thing just like Jesus' death on the cross. Nevertheless, these singular acts of sacrifice serve as standards by which all of our good works are measured. Now the time period of our story was the feast of the Passover. And Passover, much like Christmas for us, was a time in Judaism for remembering the poor. Those with Jesus grumble that this valuable jar of perfumed ointment could have been sold with its proceeds being donated to the poor. To this Jesus responds, You always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. In fact, soon after this event, they no longer have Jesus in the flesh. But how are we in the 21st century supposed to read these words? for you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. Unfortunately, these words of Jesus have been read as an acknowledgement that poverty is inevitable and perpetual. Poverty, what you gonna do? Well, Jesus gives us a suggestion by alluding to Deuteronomy 1511 which states that there will always be those in need on the earth. Deuteronomy 15 is the chapter in the Old Testament that talks about the sabbatical year, which calls for canceling debts every seventh year. It talks about giving to those in need liberally without being tight-fisted. It instructs people to take care of anyone in need in their neighborhood or town. Listen again to the words of verses four and five. There will, however, be no one in need among you because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that your Lord God is giving you as a possession to occupy. If only you will obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. There will be no one in need if you only obey. Given that our anointing scene at Bethany is so full of irony, I suggest that Jesus' statement regarding the poor is an ironic rebuke. Jesus is essentially saying this to his disciples. The poor will always be with you because you never obey God's commands. Sure, you can give to the poor whenever you want, but why is that only on holidays? Remember that time when we fed the hungry crowd of 5,000 people? You weren't exactly eager to part with your 200 denarii that day when we needed to buy bread for them, were you? Why is it that you guys cannot go all in like the woman with the nard? Or that other woman, remember the one who was down to her last two pennies and gave those? And by the way, Don't even get me started on how there could possibly be a widow in the land of Israel that is down to her last two pennies in the first place. What the heck is going on down here? Have any of you actually read the assigned reading in the syllabus from Deuteronomy 15? The problems that lead to families being caught in a cycle of poverty are complex and the sheer scale of the problem worldwide makes any attempt to address it systemically seem overwhelming. I don't have a seven-step program for for eliminating poverty and the ever-widening gap between rich and poor. Instead, I plan to follow the lead of the gospel writers who told the story of Jesus. Narratives draw us in, they challenge us, they help us see things from a different point of view. They paint pictures, giving us a vision of what is possible. Stories inspire us to join in, to join our lives to the larger narrative of the kingdom of God. And so today, I'm going to tell you the story about one family that escaped the cycle of poverty. How many of you here, raise your hands, are 47 years or younger? must be nice. All right. Well, my father, the Reverend Mac Weaver, has been at the First Baptist Church of Valdosta, Georgia your entire life. The people of Valdosta know him as a church leader and a civic leader. He is the person that people all over South Georgia call when they need to get something done. The people at the church call him Mr. Mack. And thanks to 90s hip hop duo, Chris Cross, his friends in the African American community, and now thanks to me, his grandchildren call him Daddy Mac. (laughs) To many people in Valdosta, he has just always been there. They do not know where he came from. Mac Weaver was born on June 2nd, 1942 in Scottsboro, Alabama to Otis and Nancy Weaver one of ten children. He was not born in a hospital. His mother worked in the fields all morning on the day of his birth. She delivered him in the afternoon and then returned to the fields the very next morning. Soon after his birth, the family moved to the area of Grant, Alabama, on Sand Mountain. Mac's father operated a syrup mill that someone else owned, and he was gifted at making rocking chairs that he sold on the side. Their family was what we would call the working poor. They got by, but they were living at a subsistence level. And as is always the case in such situations, there was no safety net. Life was hard, but manageable. Just as long as nothing went wrong. Unfortunately, something did go wrong. Mac was five when his father died, the, birth certificate, or the death certificate says he died of the heart dropsy, which we would call congestive heart failure. The day his father died, he hid under the bed, afraid to come out because he knew that something was wrong and that things would never be the same again. And on the day of the funeral, he was left behind, somehow missing the wagon to town. He remembers running along rows of cotton, which never seemed to end, thinking he would never get there on time. He finally made it there to say goodbye to his father, but he was very late. To this day, my father feels a surge of panic whenever he uh, passes a funeral home, which is really unfortunate when you're the one who does all of the funerals. After his father's death, his mom became a sharecropper, a tenant farmer paying rent by means of a percentage of the produce. And so they moved around from shack to shack as she looked for a better deal. There were, now, these shacks were houses that should have been condemned, but no one from the government was ever going up on that mountain. And sometimes there was no shack at all. Mac worked with his family in the cornfields and cotton fields, and he went to school. But only when he was not working or when he felt like it. Mac skipped two grades in elementary school, and when I say he skipped two grades, not like some of our bright kids at Calvary skip ahead for academic reasons. I mean, he just skipped two years. There were two years where he just didn't go. As a boy, Mac enjoyed exploring and playing on the mountain, working in the fields, and not going to school. He had exciting hobbies like stealing watermelons and shooting rats in the kitchen. What eight-year-old wouldn't like that? We can just be thankful, Jonathan, that Luke's not here to hear that because you know he would try that as soon as he got home. Then one day when my father was 12, someone showed up without warning from the Alabama State Welfare Agency telling him, we are taking you to a new place to live. My father remembers feeling sad. He was losing his freedom and everything that he had ever known. To this day, he still does not know who or what events set this this intervention in motion. There was no abuse in the family, just too many mouths to feed, and so Mac and his 10-year-old twin sisters, Helen and Ellen, were taken to Troy, Alabama to live in the Alabama Baptist Children's home. Naturally, there's a Troy, Alabama reference and the Bradleys are in Africa. Mac was amazed at what awaited him at the children's home in Troy. Not only did they feed him every day, they fed him, and this is crazy, three times a day. He had a bed to sleep in, and they even bought him clothes. Before the children's home, his wardrobe consisted of one pair of overalls. You wash them once a week, and There was nothing else to wear when they were being washed and dried, because, uh, and I mean nothing else, uh, my father did not know that underwear was actually a thing, and he never had a pair of his own shoes. The children's home in Troy was a 700-acre farm where he milked cows and worked with cattle. Everyone had chores to do. He also, though, had to go to school. They put him in the seventh grade. Problem was, He was way behind, way, way, way behind. Now I know we have a bunch of kids going to the seventh grade at Calvary this year. Can you imagine that when my father was in the seventh grade, he did not know how to read at all? He had a teacher named Mrs. Brown, and he was so glad that she never called on him. He would sit there hour after hour, just daydreaming about playing football, and one day, Mrs. Brown asked him to stay after school. She said, You don't know how to read, do you? He said, No, yeah, ma'am. She said, Would you like to learn? And boy, was he excited. Mrs. Brown stayed with him after school every single day for the entire time he was in junior high. She never embarrassed him. She never revealed a secret. She simply gave him. For time, her love, and encouragement. But the best part of the children's home was a married couple, L.D. and Maggie McGee. L.D. was known as Fat Dad, and he had been the chief of police in Lynette, Alabama. When his last child left the house, he retired from the force, and he and Maggie moved to Troy to live in one house with 24 boys. They were paid something, but it certainly was not commensurate with what they did, and it all went to those boys anyway. Fat Daddy and Mama McGee became Matt's parents, a relationship that lasted until their deaths. I knew them only as my grandparents. Like the woman with the two pennies and the gospels, what they had, they gave. Like the woman with with the alabaster jar, they did, good work. And what they poured out was lavish and extravagant. As high school came to an end, football coaches from Troy State, Florida State, Georgia Tech, and all the SEC schools came calling. He was sent letters of intent for signing day. But in the last game of the season in the high school playoffs, Mac blew out his knee. And in those days, there was no coming back for that all of the offers disappeared. A high school math teacher who had administered an aptitude test told Mac that he ought not to bother with college, it would be a waste of his time. But Mrs. Brown had given him a dream and turned him on to a world of books and he had no intentions of giving it up. So he took the $100 that the home gave to each kid as they left and he headed to Jasper, Alabama to go to Walker Junior College, he would just figure out a way to pay for it. And while he was there, he landed a job of all things as a minister to youth at at the First Baptist Church. There he met the church organist, a Sanford student who drove up on the weekends. He married her, and they followed that pastor together to the First Baptist Church of Lake Charles, Louisiana. I was born during their time there, which obviously would be the highlight of this story. (laughs) Meanwhile, Dad earned a BA in history, as well as a Masters of Education and Administration at Mackney State. His plan was to be a principal and eventually a superintendent. However, after receiving a call to ministry, our family headed to Louisville in 1968 for Mac to attend seminary. Those years in school with a child were difficult. In the year 1969, when I was a child in Kentucky, there you go. In the year 1969, my mother filled out 12 W-2 forms for my father. That's a number that even Jeremy Cruz would be proud of. At one point, An anonymous seminary friend slid some cash under our door in an envelope. When seminary students are giving you money, yikes. And one time, my father was hired as a minister of youth on one Sunday. The next Sunday, they hired another person as pastor. In the meantime, we'd given up our housing to move to this new church. But the new pastor wanted to bring in a different staff, so they promptly fired him or let him go, and once again, we were left without a home living in our car. My father graduated in May of 71, and in June, we moved to Valdosta. The church sent money for us to take a train because our car slash home had broken down. And 47 years later, he's still there. In my father's 56 years as a minister, the demographics of the South have changed dramatically. As industry and wealth have shifted South and our population has grown, our standard of living has risen greatly. Whereas most Southern Christians used to be poor, or at least relatively close to it, many are now quite affluent. And now we often view the poor with disdain. And when we do help them, it can be out of some sense of noblesse oblige, where we are not just helping those less fortunate than ourselves, but those who are just somehow less than us. Jesus said in Luke 4, 8, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. James 2, 5 declares that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. The poor, like us, are made in his image. The poor, like us, have diverse gifts and talents. They have the capacity for blessing us in ways that we could never imagine. Looking through the stack of letters that my father received at his retirement, I was moved by the many stories and experience that were shared. Reading those letters, I could not help but think of that barefoot 12-year-old boy who could not read, going commando in his overalls, running all over sand Sand Mountain. How in the world did that boy end up where he is now, having touched so many lives? He ended up there through the financial gifts of many people, gifts great and small that supported the work of the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. Such gifts are important, but you will never break the cycle of poverty just by writing checks. If you want to break the cycle of poverty, you have to break some alabaster jars. It requires people who are willing to lavishly and extravagantly pour out themselves for the sake of others even when some view it as a waste of time. It takes people like Mrs. Brown, someone not willing to write off a 12-year-old kid who can't read as dumb or lazy. It takes people like Fat Daddy and Maggie McGee, who are willing to give up their dream of a house on the lake and trade their empty nest for a nest full of 24 boys. I think that's more of an infestation. Many people showed up for my father, providing him with stable, healthy relationships. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you want, anytime you want. No, really, any time. The poor you will always have with you, And sometimes, one of them might even be your pastor. In our current preaching series, we are focusing on abundance. I could certainly talk about the abundance my family has experienced now for three generations as a result of the love shown by people to my father, like Maggie McGee. Instead, I will close with an image of the abundance that God poured out on her. In my Greek readings class this past week on Matthew, we were reading chapter 19. It tells of a rich young man who went away grieving because he had many possessions. Peter later asks, we have left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? In verse 29, part of Jesus' reply states, Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, a hundredfold. There is nothing wrong with preaching a prosperity gospel as long as you have an appropriate understanding of what prosperity actually looks like with respect to the kingdom of God. What does a hundredfold even look like? I'm not sure. But I imagine that it looks something like the very last time I saw Mama McGee. It's been well over 40 years now. We went to visit her at her house in Montgomery, Alabama on Christmas Day. When we pulled up, it was like an Alabama football game at Legion Field. There was nowhere to park. The street was full of cars and people were parking all over the yard. All of those cars belonged to men just like my father boys who had lived at the children's home in the 1950s and the 1960s. These men were there to visit their mother too, bringing with them the world's largest parade of grandchildren. All of those lives forever changed by someone who was willing to pour herself out in love lavishly and extravagantly may we all experience abundance like that let us pray most gracious lord give us the strength and the courage to break our alabaster jars and pour ourselves out for others help us to give not out of our excess but out of the very depths of our beings in the name of jesus christ who has poured himself out for us we pray
4: amen
1: This morning we have heard a powerful story we have been challenged to do good work like the woman with the alabaster jar and we have been called to be people who lavishly and extravagantly pour out ourselves for the sake of others we have both heard and sung about this full and abundant life that Christ offers to us ultimately it is in Jesus Christ in his life death and resurrection that we might have life have life abundant if you would like to talk to one of our ministers about what this looks like to have this life abundant in relationship with Jesus I would like to invite you to visit with one of us in the back of the sanctuary today during this time of response or if you would like to join this community of faith we would love to welcome and talk to you today our ministers will be in the back during this time ready to receive you and to pray with you Let's listen and respond to God.
4: Father, as we gather to take this offering as part of this worship experience, I ask that you would forgive us for failing in temptation to look around us and continue to want more things. I ask that you forgive us for falling to temptation from smelling Food and wanting more than the banquets we already have in our cabinets and on our table. And I ask you to forgive us for the times that we gather and worship and ask that you give us more things from your hand. So today, Lord, I come to pray that you would give us your heart. And as each of us receives your heart, we will see and we will share, and we will break our alabaster jar. We'll share a few things that uh, everyone wants to know about. Thank you, Joel, for sharing your heart and your wisdom with us. We all are indebted to you for that. We also want to thank all of you who have so unselfishly spent your week, a lot of it here in this place, helping with Children's Bible Club. If you if you are a part of that, raise your hand, please. Thank you, thank you so much, so much, that we are loving you and loving you for being so unselfish with that. Please remember to pray for all of those who are this week involved in mission activities, representing Calvary where they are. Our South Texas people, including our pastor, left yesterday morning, and our youth left this morning at 7 p.m., and they are traveling as we speak and should arrive uh, Their destination around nine o'clock this evening so please pray for them as you go today and throughout the week our pastor left her words of wisdom and this benediction that she has written and we hear it often from her and i'm going to share her words with you this morning as we leave friends may the god who calls you from this place journey with you as we go may god delight in you with joy bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment, and comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you, may Christ's mercy astound you, and may the Spirit abound so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with you always. In Christ's name we pray.